From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In his first year in office, freshman Congressman Joe Neguz of Boulder has become influential. He sits on judiciary, which was central to impeachment. He's a bridge between new progressive members and Democratic stalwarts like Speaker Pelosi. They were together at the Global Climate Talks this year. I left the conference with a distinct sense of just how desperate the international stage is for leadership from the United States. More of our year-end interviews with Colorado's Congress members. Later, a GOP strategist on what impeachment may mean for the top of the ticket in Colorado on down. And those pesky poinsettias. Your plant will tell you what it wants. If it starts to wilt, that's not a sign that it's dying. That's a sign that it just needs water. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not clear when or precisely how the impeachment of President Trump will proceed. The hang-up is in the Senate, where the parties disagree over rules for a trial. Over in the House, we've seen a freshman congressman from Colorado wield a great deal of influence. That's because Joe Neguse of Boulder sits on judiciary. He's also influential on another issue, climate change. He's on a high-profile committee dedicated to the climate crisis. Those words are in its name. All the while, Neguse has managed to bridge distinct wings of the Democratic Party. He's become a trusted lieutenant of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, while maintaining cred with younger progressives. Neguse is with us for our year-end conversations with Colorado's members of Congress. Welcome back to the program. That's great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I want to explore this most interesting year for you. In February, you aligned with another first-year representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, in announcing the Green New Deal. This is an ambitious package to fight climate change, certainly one that Democrats don't see eye to eye on. Speaker Pelosi has said, I can't say we're going to take that and pass it. And yet you two are closely allied. How do you navigate some of the rather stark differences within your own party? Uh, Well, my approach has always been to try to build partnerships uh, with others who are approaching in good faith the work that's before us in terms of solving problems. And so uh, I've been very lucky to have developed friendships and partnerships with representatives like Representative Ocasio-Cortez, also other members of uh, the freshman class who are from uh, more conservative districts. As you know, uh, I represent the freshman class as part of the leadership team. And so my task there is to advocate for all 62 Democratic freshmen in the United States Congress at the leadership table and provide a bridge between them and Speaker Pelosi and the majority leader. So a lot of my work, again, is uh, trying to build big coalitions. And obviously, as you mentioned, on some issues, uh, there are going to be robust areas of disagreement. And that's healthy. Uh, We ought to be a a party that welcomes uh, the discussion of different policy platforms and ideas and then hopefully get to a place where we can reach consensus. I mean, in a way, that mirrors the Democratic primary for president, don't you think? I think it's a fair point. I have not, to be candid, have not followed the presidential race as closely as uh, as maybe perhaps as I should, but uh, because we've been so focused on the legislative work. But yes, you're right. I mean, again, I think the, the Democratic Party is having a very big 
and robust debate right now about uh, the policy priorities for uh, the Democratic Party writ at large. And that's healthy. And, you know, I imagine that uh, we'll get to a place where there is some consensus and we can push forward. In September, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came to Boulder to speak at a dinner at CU, and she accompanied you to meetings with youth climate activists. You're one of more than 100 House Democrats backing the Green New Deal. Do you place more hope for the Green New Deal on the presidential stage, uh, deciding who wins in 2020, more so than you do, for instance, in the current Congress? I think that's right. I mean, right now, obviously, we're at a time of divided government. And so, you know, I don't have any uh, illusions that this current president would sign the type of comprehensive legislation that one uh, like myself believes we need to ultimately fight the existential threat of climate change. And so I think ultimately to, to take the kind of steps that we're going to need to take. Uh, given the very short runway, as uh, detailed by the IPCC report and any other many other empirical studies that have been done, the intergovernmental uh, panel on climate. Change. Yeah, that's right, precisely. Yeah. Um, that ultimately we're going to need a, a, a different precedent. Uh, but at the end of the day, I will tell you, uh, Ryan, that one of the most heartening developments for me personally in the last few years has been to see the youth activism that has developed, uh, demanding uh, that Congress and that policymakers take this issue seriously and treat it with the respect it deserves. But so. is is the youth movement as partisan as the adult movement? In other words, are you seeing young conservatives on that bandwagon or is it sort of more of the same? Uh, you know, I don't think it's monolithic. I have seen some young conservatives. One of our focuses has been regenerative agriculture, leveraging the carbon sink in the soil to ultimately help the fight against climate change. The ground can be a reservoir, if you will, for carbon so that it's not released into the atmosphere and adding as a greenhouse gas, you're saying. That's precisely right. Yeah. And there are a lot of liberal farmers, conservative farmers, uh, farmers of all political stripes or no political stripes at all that are very interested. That's one area. We actually had an event in Boulder with a Republican congressman from North Dakota who came to the district and uh, spent some time with some uh, farmers who are engaged in this type of work. So look, at the end of the day, I'm going to try to legislate wins where I can. Okay. In December, you accompanied Speaker Pelosi to Spain for the Global Climate Change Summit. Given what some would call a loss of U.S. leadership on the issue, how do you convince your peers from around the globe that the U.S. is even vaguely effective as an ally here? Well, I think it was why uh, that trip, the high-level delegation that you mentioned, was so important to tell our international partners that notwithstanding the efforts by the Trump administration to roll back all kinds of uh, regulations that protect our environment and obviously their attempted exit out of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, that there are millions of Americans who still feel deeply uh, that the United States has to play a leadership role in the fight against climate change. So I mean, we at, were at we best, were really there to deliver that message. At best, that's a confusing message. At worst, you're undermining the president's agenda. I, I don't agree. I mean, I, I think that obviously one could say that the, the message that we were delivering is different. But look, the Congress and the Speaker of the House has a role to play in reassuring our international partners uh, that there are uh, various subnational governments in the United States, that is to say cities, states that are taking a lead on climate change, Colorado and the various cities in my district are great examples of this. I spent a lot of time talking about Boulder and Fort Collins and the other cities that I represent that have committed to 100% renewable energy, notwithstanding uh, this president's efforts to curtail climate action. So no, I thought that it was incredibly important that we be there. I will tell you, I left the conference, the COP25, uh, with a distinct sense of just how desperate 
the international stage is for leadership from the United States. And that is to say, I you think- You sense a hunger for that. That's precisely right. Um, and there's a vacuum there. And uh, I am hopeful that we will rise to the occasion and fill it. Speaker Pelosi uh, did not immediately send the articles of impeachment to the Senate for a trial. She wants to see what she sees as fairer rules there. I want to take this a little further. Is there any discussion of Democrats waiting until after the 2020 election in hopes they reclaim the Senate and that if President Trump is still president, the impeachment might move forward that way? Is that an idea you're even vaguely acquainted with? No. 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 Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. (laughs) Okay, okay. That's speculation on my part, I grant. What is your thought about not having immediately sent the articles over to the Senate? I think ultimately it's going to be the speaker's decision. And so I would defer to to her judgment on that question. I will say, I think there are a number of us uh, in the Democratic caucus, and and frankly, I think uh, the American people as well, who are deeply disappointed by the statements made by the Senate majority leader, um, who has indicated that he's not going to approach this in an impartial or fair way, in an objective way. I think it's reasonable to expect uh, that the Senate would be able to forge a consensus on a bipartisan basis in terms of developing rules that would enable uh, the articles to be considered fairly in an impartial way. Uh, In 1999, just by way of example, uh, during the impeachment of President Clinton, the Senate by 100 to zero. So every United States senator voted in favor of a bipartisan set of rules. Do you think that the rules were fair in the House? In other words, are Democrats asking for something in the Senate that they didn't give Republicans at the front end? Uh, No, I don't think that's the case. I thought the process in the House was fair. I thought it was consistent with the way in which impeachments uh, in the past had been conducted, both President Clinton's as well as President Nixon's. One can see that there was robust due process provided to the president. The president chose not to participate, as as you know. Uh, That was his decision. At the end of the day, I still believe that the process was a fair one. So, Uh, You say the the impeachment against Nixon. Of course, that never actually occurred, but the rules had been drafted. Precisely. By that, I mean the Judiciary Committee's process. As you may know, articles were approved, uh, but ultimately he resigned. resigned before those were taken up. I want to share just a few thoughts from Herman Utecht of Hudson, Colorado. After impeachment, he continues to support the president. Uh, I just want to quote him here. It doesn't change a thing. Those Democrats haven't gotten over him beating Hillary. It's been that way since day one. I wish they would just drop it and be done with it and move on. Speak to Herman and folks like him who have a hard time believing that this isn't a deeply partisan move and and who see a man they voted for under attack constantly and say, well, this is just one more iteration, you know? A couple things. I mean, one, you know, while I respect his opinion, obviously I, I do disagree. And I would say that there are a number of Republicans and unaffiliated individuals who have spoken out in favor of supporting the action that the House took. Ultimately, as you know, uh, there were no Republican members of Congress, but there was, in fact, uh, an independent member of Congress, Justin Amash, who used to be a Republican, who felt compelled to vote in favor of both articles of impeachment. He had come out in support of an inquiry uh, many months ago, and after doing so, ultimately had to leave the Republican Party. I would just say I was disappointed in so many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, who were unwilling to put country over party. At the end of the day, if one reviews the evidence that was compiled by the Intelligence Committee and 
compares that against the legal standards as explained by the constitutional scholars that testified in front of the Judiciary Committee that I serve on and applies that evidence against those standards, the inescapable conclusion is that the president abused his power and that he obstructed Congress. You mentioned the Judiciary Committee. You serve on that with Ken Buck, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado. It was recently reported that you've developed a close friendship with Buck. I'm not sure how you'd interpret this, but in an interview with the Denver Post, Buck said, you were sort of a Democratic Cory Gardner, adding that you're just a fun person to be around. Obviously, the two of you have taken starkly different positions, certainly when it comes to impeachment. But it only seems to last for as long as you're on the floor, I guess. What, what, what has made that work from your perspective? You know, I've spent most of my life in Colorado. I grew up here. And I think we have a different way of doing things in Colorado. There is an ethos in our state uh, that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, and that at the end of the day, we can try to approach each other in good faith and to not question or impugn others' motives. And so while I disagree uh, with my colleagues on any number of important policy matters and, and in some cases vociferously disagree. And on, on issues, by the way, you know, like climate change and impeachment, which I gather you see as almost existential. Yeah, I mean, certainly, as we've talked about, climate change, in my view, is is in fact an existential issue. I think about it in the context of uh, my daughter, who's now 15 months old in the world that she will inherit. But look, again, what I would say is turning down the temperature of our politics, uh, I think treating people with respect, even if one disagrees, uh, those are principles that I would hope people would want to see in their public servants. That is the hard work of governing. So from my perspective, it's why I'm there. Uh, and I'm lucky to to have the opportunity to be able to engage in those conversations with my colleagues. Keeping that line of communication open. Are there times you want to just shake Ken Buck or he wants to shake you? <laughs> I'll let you ask him that question. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, let me ask you. I mean, what, are there times you want to shake Ken Buck? <laughs> no, look, again, we disagree on a lot of policy matters, uh -huh. but uh, that doesn't mean that we can't be kind to each other. Do you have interactions in Washington where you sense that people are not often acting in good faith with you? And there's certainly been instances in which uh, one uh, doubts whether or not a member who's approaching you on co-sponsoring a given bill is in fact approaching you in good faith. If if they have an actual cogent policy basis to pursue the legislation that they are pursuing, or if it's just simply to uh, to make a, a political point. And more, so that's fascinating. In other words, someone approaches you, and then you start going, "What's your angle? What's your motivation?" <laughs> Like, do you, do you find yourself having to rely on this kind of spidey senses a lot in Washington? Well, I think this is part and parcel to why it's so important to assemble a good team. So I end up relying not just on my spidey sense, but um, but it, frankly, the, my team, my legislative director and, you know, the, the staff that we've assembled in Washington who are very good at deciphering as proposals come across and, and kind of understanding the full holistic context of a bill presented to us. But but for me personally, Ryan, again, I would go back to the, the statement I made around questioning one's motives, because I think when, when I talk about approaching someone in good faith, it's not questioning one's motives as to the policy proposal they're making, and by extension, not questioning the motives of someone who might disagree with you, who might oppose the policy because it's not in the best interests of their constituents. Yet it's trust but verify, I guess is what I hear you saying. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Earlier this month, you worked with Colorado Senators Michael Bennett and Cory Gardner on bipartisan bills to expand Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, which is in your district wholly, partially? Yeah, completely. In my you district. completely? Okay. Yes. 
the congressman for Rocky Mountain National Park, That's everyone, right. Jonah Goose. So this came after former NASA astronaut Vance D. Brand donated some acreage to the park. You also helped shepherd the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act, the CORE Act, to passage in the House. Uh, that bill would help protect 400,000 acres of Colorado land. Your office says it's the only bill to pass in the Senate or House this year that has the word Colorado in it. What are the prospects for passage in the Mitch McConnell Republican-controlled Senate, the CORE Act? So a couple things. I would say we've been leading on a number of different public land bills and working very hard on that front. Uh, Four of the bills that we introduced this year, the provisions of those bills will become law, and uh, all four of them relate to public lands. With respect to the CORE Act, as you mentioned, it it was a omnibus large piece of legislation that would protect about 400,000 acres across our state. It was the first major uh, statewide Colorado wilderness legislation to pass the United States House in over a decade. And so it, in my view, is long overdue. I am hopeful. uh, I'm an eternal optimist uh, that uh, the bill will see action in the United States Senate. I think... I'll say we we spoke with Senator Benes and, uh, you know... It's dicey. It's dicey over in the Senate for the CORE Act. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I, I am a realist as well. And so recognize that uh, in this Senate with Mitch McConnell as the majority leader, as you know, there are over 400 bills that the House has passed, many of them bipartisan, and none of them are getting consideration in the United States Senate, uh, where really the, the chamber uh, has become a legislative graveyard of sorts. And I think that's a, a tragedy and a shame because there's so many positive policy priorities that would move the needle for the American people, including bills that we've authored like the Act that deserve at least a hearing in committee. I mean, I think in, in the Corax case, you don't even have Senator Gardner on board. Uh, we He has not expressed uh, support yet for the bill. We continue to have conversations with him. There were five Republican members of Congress who voted for the CORE Act. None uh, from Colorado, correct? That's, that's right. Uh-huh. Um, and it's unfortunate because so many of the local communities impacted by the bill, county commissioners uh, across the state and across the Western Slope who expressed strong support for the bill. So, some Republican. Uh, some Republican. Mm-hmm. That's, that's precisely right. So I would hope that this would be an area of... Uh, where we could actually forge some compromises and get the bill done. We're going to continue to work at it. Thanks so much, Congressman. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Democrat Joe Neguse of Boulder, part of our series of year-end interviews with the delegation. Ambitious wind and solar goals are no longer just for urban electric utilities like Excel. Rural providers are in, too. But as CPR's Grace Hood explains, that puts pressure on an old economic model. A lot of days on Stephen Whiteside's 45-acre ranch start out the same. He loads chopped wood into a weathered black wheelbarrow. He uses it to feed his fireplace and keep electric bills low. The system here is this goes over to these steps, and I carry it up under the awning there. Whiteside is a fourth-generation Coloradan and a conservative Republican. He supports his rural utilities' calls for more renewable energy because that can mean cheaper rates. According to one recent estimate, Whiteside's electric bill is as much as 20 percent higher compared to the statewide average. One thing I enjoy about uh, uh, rural environment is, is people are very environmentally tuned in. Their, their own uh, economic future depends on that, and that's just how they live. Whiteside's utility, United Power, wants to cut costs. CEO John Parker says that could mean changing the economic model his utility follows. 
Right now, they joined together with dozens of other utilities to buy power from one provider, Tri-State. In the 80s and 90s, rural power providers like Tri-State invested heavily in coal-fired plants. They even own a coal mine. What, what that model has not done is kept up with the technological changes in the industry. United Power is locked into a contract with Tri-State that lasts another 30 years. But as wind and solar grow ever cheaper, United Power worries that Tri-State isn't keeping up. They want to know how much it would cost to end their contract with Tri-State. So they've asked Colorado utility regulators for help. That's the balance that we're, we're trying to find. If, if it costs us a billion, too, to get out, uh, we probably can't save enough money to make that work. If Parker leaves, he'll follow in the footsteps of one other western rural utility that used to buy power from Tri-State. Lee Bowie from Tri-State says they are making changes. They're greening up their supply with renewable power. He says one of the challenges is that it's just more expensive to provide electricity to rural America. Tri-State serves an area that's about 20 percent larger than the state of California but with about 5% of California's electrical load. So it's a vast area that we need to generate and deliver power to. In the future, the trick for Tri-State will be to get those fossil fuel sources off of its financial books and bring on cheaper wind and solar, all without going too far into debt. As we move into 2020 and and chart our course for the future, I think there should be confidence that we'll be able to to meet the challenges that are ahead. Across the United States, similar things are happening. Greg Ritterbush is with Connexus, a large utility that serves customers outside Minneapolis. Ritterbush and Connexus are in the middle of talks with their power provider to lower rates and get more flexibility for solar projects. Like United Power, Connexus is locked into a long contract with its power provider, a generation and transmission cooperative, otherwise known as GT. So to have the flexibility to do that, it takes both the local system, which is us, but we need the GNT to to lower the constraints on things that we're doing within our own backyard for our members. Back in Colorado, Stephen Whiteside is indoors, warming up his home for another cold winter day. Whiteside says he likes the idea of cheaper utility bills. He won't save a lot of money. Bills average about $50 a month for him. But he knows how strapped for cash some of his rural neighbors can be. And I think that's fairly recent, that renewables may be more cost-effective than um, other types of energy. And so if that's the case, then to me that makes a lot of sense to pursue that kind of uh, avenue. Tri-State is currently considering whether to change up how their contracts work. In the meantime, Whiteside's Rural Utility says it will continue to explore the idea of leaving Tri-State. Colorado utility regulators could rule on the case next year. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end of year gift is so important. 
When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Every Republican in the U.S. House voted against President Trump's impeachment last week. Like the president, they argue the process is unfair and politically motivated. Now, assuming there's a Senate trial and that the president survives, how might the electorate react come November, especially in Colorado? GOP strategist Ryan Lynch used to be executive director of the Colorado Republican Party. Ryan, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. I really like the new studio. Uh, Thank you. Yes, as we broadcast to you from downtown Denver. I'd like to start with news that broke Friday. Emails released by the Pentagon show that an hour and a half after President Trump's July phone call with the Ukrainian president, the White House Budget Office told the Defense Department to freeze the military aid. And a budget official asked that the whole thing be kept quiet. Ryan, if this was the perfect call, as the president has said, and that it was primarily about fighting corruption, why keep it a secret? I really can't get into the the head of this administration. So um, oftentimes I'm, I'm not sure why they do the things that they do. Um, what I do know is that their uh, base of support seems to view it as static noise. And so... Um, I, I've heard several Democrats call this a bombshell. Um, I, I, I just feel like it falls into everything else. And then, what does it fall into for you? Personally, I um, on this specific issue, it, it's it's I guess it's it's complicated. It, it just seems like um, everyone has their has their hand in the honey pot in one way or another, whether it's the Republican administration or the Democrat Congress, or Democrat nominees for president. Um, there's been a lot of missteps along the way. And, you know, for me, it's it's just kind of, it's it's just another day in politics. And So what I hear you doing there is a bit of whataboutism, right? I ask you about the president's behavior. You say, well, but other people behave uh, in questionable ways. Um, d- does it give you pause that the president's, uh, folks just after this call asked for the aid to be frozen. Do, do you feel that that's an important development worth exploration? Yes. You do? I do. When you say you can't get into the head of this administration, does that frustrate you? In a sense, because a lot of what's happened there has defied traditional political logic, right? Um, things have things just seem different than they usually are. And so... Um, what may have been a major issue in the past, what may have been debilitating for an administration, just seems like another day in, in Washington, D.C. now. And that's why I kind of say it's, 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 you know, between the actions of the administration and accidents or, or incidents by other actors uh, within our political system, it all just seems to just become so convoluted that um, one issue doesn't become this this big bombshell. It all just kind of is another stack on the deck, right? There, there's never a catalyst. That right. I suppose Democrats would hope there would be. I'm sure they would. Uh-huh. But it, it would just seem that, I don't know, I would be shocked to see what, what would be the straw that broke the camel's back. What, what would be the, the final straw? And I just, I don't know what that would be because... Interesting intellectual now, now exercise. That, right. to uh-huh. we've, we've gotten to this point. I don't know. I don't know where you go from here. Acknowledge, is that good for the republic, by the way? Um, probably not. 
Acknowledging the potential for further twists and turns, you've alluded to the ones that have already occurred. Let's assume the Senate acquits. What effect do you think all of this will have on Republican voters in Colorado next year? Well, the most ardent Trump supporters um, are even more fired up than they than they were. Some of them view it as uh, an attempt by the Democrats to circumvent um, elections, the will of the voters or the will of the Electoral College, as it were. Uh, others view this as, as something even deeper, evidence of uh, the existence of the deep state. Um, but I think it's important to note that estimates I've seen suggest that one in 10 Republicans did not vote for President Trump in 2016 um, for a variety of reasons, whether it was they didn't like his temperament, they didn't like his policies, whatever it may have been, they didn't vote for him. And One then in 10, okay. Estimates that I've seen, and, and this is nationally. Um, and then some percentage of Republicans didn't vote at all. So, um, But as a whole, I believe Republicans ha- are um, viewing this as as a partisan partisan game gamesmanship that this is political grandstanding on the part of the Democrats. You're referring to impeachment. Yeah, I, I am. And so, do you think that the numbers? Do you expect them to change then uh, into 2020? Do you think that? Uh... I I think that that at least some percentage of of those Republican holdouts will vote against the Democrats purely out of spite at this point because they again view this as partisan gamesmanship. And so, so it, you think this will be a motivating factor for voters that sat out the last election, the last presidential election? I do, oh. I do, and and that and that can be impactful because, you know, the more Republican support that you can consolidate, uh, the the less of the percentage of the true middle, whether it be of Colorado or of America, you need to take in order to win the election. Of course, we know that the unaffiliated voter is a mighty powerful one in Colorado. They're roughly a third of the electorate. Uh, Would you also expect then uh, that to benefit someone like Cory Gardner down ballot? Absolutely. And in fact, I think I think it would be more impactful on the down ballot than it would be the president because, you know, the president did lose by by five points in Colorado in 2016. That's right. Um, So even if you do consolidate Republican support, you're still going to need to find a way to turn the middle of Colorado. And and I guess the pessimist in me would say, I don't know that there's that many people out there that are on the fence, that are, you know, that, that don't have a strong opinion about the president one way or the other. So um, it, are there enough out there to to turn five points when you when you add the Republican support into the aggregate? I don't I don't really know. Uh, but down ballot. I think somebody like Cory Gardner or some a candidate for the state senate or whatever it might be, uh, if if Repu- Republican can, support can be consolidated at the top, they have a better opportunity to then take their case to the middle of Colorado, who maybe don't necessarily have a deep-seated opinion about them mm. one way or the other. Who don't feel as strongly uh, right. about the, the Gardner race and whoever right. he r- winds up running against among the Democrats as they do. Uh, President Trump. I want to talk, though, about Democratic motivation. Sure. Uh, We certainly saw that in just this last midterm election. So uh, who's to say whose surge, you know, in 2020 is greater? Uh, That's a key question here, isn't it? Sure. And and I don't know that that Democrats really had a problem with enthusiasm uh, in the first place. So um, 
you know, they they turned out very well in the midterms in 2018. Um, they were able to take the House. And uh, and so you know, between that and all you've seen with the resist movement, I don't know that they had a problem with enthusiasm in the first place. But there is a, a certain level of complacency that exists um, when you have the incumbency. So with Republicans, traditionally, perhaps they wouldn't be as fired up as eager to get out there and vote is eager to get out there and volunteer and donate. Um, but this impeachment stuff is certainly, I think, I think spark that keg. Oh, that's interesting. You'd expect something of a lull or some complacency. It may be that sure. impeachment is serving uh, to, to work counter to that. For But now, since there is the perception that, that they're using Congress to circumvent the election, I think now you're really going to see these folks come out. Well, I appreciate your sense of the dynamics. Thanks for being with us, Ryan. Of course. Thank you for having me. Ryan Lynch, former executive director of the Colorado Republican Party, now heads the political firm Pole Star Strategies in Denver. Repairing cars has been Susan Washira's dream since she was a little girl. But the auto industry has historically been a boys' club. Less than 10% of mechanics are women. Now, Washira is one of the first female foremen at Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver. She and another woman run the auto service shop. And Susan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Congratulations to you. Auto repair is also facing a worker shortage right now. Some 46,000 new auto mechanics will be needed by 2026, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In other words, the field is hiring. For some big picture perspective, Stephanie Donner is also here, executive director of Emily Griffith Technical College. Hi again, Stephanie. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Susan, I want to know where your love for cars came from. When I was growing up, uh, we had these rally cars that was passing through our home. I always like loving those cars. So when I was growing up, I saw those cars. This is cars. in Kenya, by the way, right? Yeah, this is in Kenya. And how did you describe these cars? Rowdy cars? They were so rowdy, and they could we could wake up. They, they used to pass by my place at 5 a.m. in the morning, so we used to wake up very early in the morning to see those cars. So I was looking to work on those cars, to drive those cars, so I was so happy when I I acquired my first car and I wanted to be the first at those ones. And what was your first car? I'm just very curious now. It was a Kia. Okay, so as I said, you and another student became the first female foreman at Emily Griffith recently. Even the term foreman, I realize as I say it, reminds us that this has been a boys' club. Stephanie, it's 2019, but women working in auto repair are still quite rare. Why do you think that is? I think that traditionally women, and Susan and I have talked about this, are not necessarily attracted to that field because they don't see themselves represented. And so with people like Susan and Laura, her colleague, at the helm, we hope to see more. You hope to see more. And so they are in and of themselves perhaps inspiration to other women. But is it also because this is an uncomfortable field perhaps for women to work in with it being such a boys club? It's It could be uncomfortable, but we're taking steps at Emily Griffith to ensure that women are comfortable in the shop. And particularly by installing more women in leadership, we think that it will attract more women and they will feel more comfortable and safe. 
What what steps do you take besides putting women in leadership positions? What what does it mean to make a comfortable environment? We talked about designing clothes specifically for them. We talked about designing workspaces for them, having specific amounts of time and, and ability to be able to be together and learn together and uh, learn from their male colleagues as well. I don't often ask about guests' clothing, but what is it about clothing you need to modify to make this a more welcoming profession, Susan? Uh, you know, women love fashion. So, well, so some do, not all, right? Most of them. Uh, and making like fashion, you know, most of uh, clothes that right now automotive industry wear, it's it's just maybe a shirt or a apron, but uh, designing it uh, design in in a way woman would like to have it. Okay. And having like a, a very nice and a tight jeans with something a strap on the top that will make women so feel so comfortable in that cloth. Not something I would have ever thought of. I wonder if you could speak at all, Stephanie, to the mechanic shortage the country is facing right now. I mean, is this something that Emily Griffith is keeping an eye on? We're certainly keeping an eye on it. The irony of that statement, though, is is that our classes are currently and have been for the last year waitlisted. So we I see. Actually, you're not exactly seeing a shortage in the classroom then. Correct. So we have an opportunity to try to do more, but also to try to evolve the program. Computerized cars now and electronic vehicles are on the rise. And so we're looking at how we can meet that demand as well. I'm curious, Susan, if you ever have anyone else work on your car, if you take your car into the mechanics, and if they assume, because you're female, that you don't know what you're talking about with cars. Do you find that stereotype in the world? Before I start the the training on the auto, I was getting that one. You see, like someone even doesn't want you to touch even the, the screw or something from the car because they think you don't know anything. But since I started doing it, I now you can now interrupt with them and tell them, I think my car had this problem. I think you need to fix this one. And they are like, oh, so you know about the car. So knowledge has given you some confidence, it sounds like. Stephanie, before we go, I know that Emily Griffith hosted a trade event for high school girls that included automotive service. Why is this a career that would appeal to women? I think just as it appeals to men, it is an opportunity to collaborate, to work together, to um, use your hands and and also um, engineering skills that you can use that, that are transferable in other fields as well. And our Women's in Trade event was incredibly well attended, not just by high school students, but by a number of female business leaders in all trades and shared their experiences about working in a male-dominated industry, and it was quite successful. Uh, Thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much. Stephanie Donner, Executive Director of the Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver, and Susan Washira, she's one of the school's first female auto service foreman. We've been working to answer a Colorado Wonders question all this month with your help. The question is, what's Colorado's iconic dish? Chefs, historians, and restaurant owners have weighed in, but no single dish has emerged. So we asked you to vote, and the results are in. Here's Claire Cleveland. Philadelphia has the Philly cheesesteak, Nashville hot chicken. But what about Colorado or even Denver? 
Turns out we have a whole list of foods that are fairly iconic. We have the Pueblo Slopper, the Denver Omelette, and Rocky Mountain Oysters, to name a few. But nothing that really rises to the level of what other cities have. So we made a food bracket at CPR.org, and you voted. It came down to microbrew beer versus green chili. Even Governor Jared Polis weighed in. He's very pro-green chili. And former Governor John Hickenlooper wants to have it both ways. He tweeted that after hitting the slopes, he wants a hot bowl of chili and a cold beer. But there was a definite winner in our voting rounds. It's green chili. We smother our burritos with it, eat it with a tortilla, put it over rice, and in some cases, pour it on mac and cheese. Leila Gallardo lives in Denver. She's traced her ancestry back 15 generations in southern Colorado. She says green chili is an important part of her heritage. I feel like it's a part of our DNA because my ancestry is Mexican and Spanish in Tiwa Puebla. With that, we have this whole culture, uh, cultural foods. Um, some of our cultural foods are green chili and then some of it is atole. We just have specific foods here in Colorado that you'll only find here in southern Colorado, northern New Mexico. Speaking of New Mexico, we heard from a few of you who said that state gets to claim green chili, not Colorado, including Brian Beck told of Denver. I feel like New Mexico has owned green chili for decades. I mean, it's on their license plates. They even have an official state question, do you want red or green chili on your food? So I never have really associated that with Colorado. He's right. It is a New Mexico thing too, but Gallardo really put into perspective why both states can claim it. So it doesn't matter whether or not it's Colorado chili or New Mexico chili, because if you're originally from this area, if you're a Chicano, if you're a a Mexican, what I would say is that we're all the same people and it's the same cultural foods. Today, people from all kinds of backgrounds enjoy green chili, and Gallardo is so proud that one of her cultural foods is loved by so many. I think that it's great that other people like our food and that we're able to share that with them, because if you look at the history of Southern Colorado, Hispanos, Chicanos, Mexicans, indigenous people, we are very much a part of this state. Like, we didn't cross the border, it crossed us here. While the food may belong to Colorado and New Mexico, one thing is clear. You can only find green chili in this region of the country. When you grow up having this green chili all your life and you don't have it, it's really hard. Like, last winter I was in Minnesota all winter and My mother packed a huge box of green chili and sent it with a friend like she had no shame. There is an important distinction between the green chili peppers grown in Colorado versus the New Mexico kind. That's where Michael Bartolo comes in. He's a vegetable crop specialist at the Colorado State University Rocky Ford Station. He grew up near Pueblo and has spent most of his life improving on the chilies grown there. He said New Mexico's chili is akin to an Anaheim. Whereas the Pueblo chili is really a distinct variety. Um, One of the more prototypical Pueblo chilies is one called Moscow. And that has uh, typically a little bit shorter than a typical Anaheim chili and much thicker walled than the New Mexico chili. So it's really a distinct type from the New Mexico chili. So our quest to find the iconic Colorado food is over with a decisive win for green chili. It took 70% of the vote. It's not scientific, but hey, it passes the taste test. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News.
Okay, you may have a poinsettia or two decorating your home. And yes, we discovered the correct pronunciation is poinsettia, where I say the I at the end. In any case, our producer, Michelle Fulcher, buys the plant every year, but their relationship is complicated. She spoke with horticulturist Nick Giaquinto of the Denver Botanic Gardens. So let me start with this. We have a beautiful poinsettia sitting right here in the studio. Red leaves, white leaves, I'm going to describe them as perky, right? They're kind of standing up. Beautiful plant. If this were in my house, I'd just be hoping that it would last till Christmas. Am I the lone ranger here or poinsettia is hard to take care of? They can be a challenge to take care of because most people, they love to overwater plants. Poinsettias like to dry out between waterings. And unfortunately, everybody feels the need to really love their plants. Sort of killing them with kindness. Yes, kind they of love thing. them so much that they want to drown them. So they water <laughs> them almost every day, every other day. Poinsettias, depending on where you place them, in sunnier places, they might need to be watered a bit more frequently. In a darker place, a little bit less so. Usually, you can tell where how to water them by checking the soil. So if the soil feels dry, that's a good indicator that you should water your plant now. So not even moist, but dry. Dry, yeah. So if you look at your plant, your plant will tell you what it wants. If it starts to wilt, that's not a sign that it's dying. That's a sign that it just needs water. So you just got to look at those hints. And if you follow those hints, you will make it last longer than the first week when you buy it. So I have to be sort of a plant psychologist along with everything else? I, I wouldn't say psychologist. I usually use detective to figure out those very not-so-subtle hints that they're giving you. Give me another couple of hints of things that people do wrong. Overwatering is usually the biggest criminal thing. The other thing is when they place them in someplace really dark and then expect them to last longer. Plants obviously need natural light to survive, and inside is already much darker than outside. Okay. Um, so putting it in the darkest corner in your room with no lights or not, not even a window, it's ensuring that your plant is not going to live for a long time. So I have kind of the opposite problem. I have big old windows all through my house. And every time I buy one of these plants, somebody says, indirect light. I'm like, first of all, what is that? And second, like, do I move the plant around during the day to catch the indirect light? No. So <laughs> um, usually it just means to keep it away from the window if it's a south-facing window. Okay. Um, south-facing windows are the brightest area. So usually take it away from the window. It'll still be in a very bright room, indirect light. How did this become a holiday plant anyway? So they're well known because of their bright red bracts or white bracts, pink bracts. There's and so bracts many, are leaves. Yes. It's just been a staple from our greenhouse industry. They're very easy to grow and cultivate. And it's also just because it's a, a pretty cheap plant for greenhouses to grow. So the poinsettia is native to Mexico it was cultivated by the Aztecs. Uh, when the missionaries came later, they called it, I love this, El Flor de Noche Buena. That means the flower of Christmas Eve. How did it come to the U.S.? The poinsettia is actually named after a U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Poinsett. Basically, during the early to mid-1800s, there's a lot of plant collecting going on at the time. So mm. 
people love to have all these rare exotic plants. And then over time, it just became a staple for those lovely red or white bracts that they can grow for the holiday season. What do you think of poinsettias? You're a horticulturist. I ask that question every day, too, actually. I'm not a huge fan of poinsettias. Um, I, I wish that we used more anthuriums, which is another amazing aeroid family plant that um, is usually used actually in Europe more for their cut flowers during the holiday season. And what do anthuriums, do they have like a popular name? A uh, flamingo flower would cool. probably be the most common name. It's a staple houseplant here in the United States as well. Um, continually blooms red flowers. Oh, nice. um, it's just a great plant and much sturdier than a poinsettia. The problem with things like anthuriums is that they're much more expensive. Okay, so there's a myth that goes with poinsettias. Poinsettias. There you go. There you go. Um, that they're poisonous, right? No. So they're related to, they, they are euphorbia, and there are a lot of euphorbias, and some of them are toxic. But um, poinsettia is not toxic. Same thing with like the concern of feeding your dog or cat. Right. It's not going to be the end of the world if they accidentally bit a leaf or two off of it. That is Nick Giaquinto, horticulturalist at the Denver Botanic Gardens, speaking with producer Michelle Fulcher. Michelle's poinsettia has made it a week so far. Percy, the puny poinsettia, hanging his bloom in dismay. If they had just kept him wetter, he'd be a houseplant today. Folks like the other plants better. Now he's alone on the shelf. Even a plant with no uncle or aunt shouldn't spend Christmas Day by himself. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. Take out a plant to take home. One at